Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm really happy to have you all here with me today, and I appreciate all the sharing and everything that everyone's done to kind of help get the word out. Uh, it, there's only so much we can do as, as artists and, and as individuals, and it's uh, definitely a huge benefit for everyone to share with their friends, with other artists, with people that they think might like the content. Uh, so definitely thank you. And if you have any questions, any suggestions, again, you can always reach me at scott at scott Haskin.com. Um, you can try and contact me on Twitter, but I find that a lot of the posts there for me just get lost in the shuffle. So that's probably the best way to reach me. Uh, feel free also to reach out to my Facebook page. I have a like page. I also have a group there. Uh, so either one, Scott Haskin Music LLC and Scott Haskin Music and more. And uh, you can find those links on my regular Scott Haskin page as well. So I'm really excited about today's guest, my friend uh, Summer Helene, who's worked as an executive producer for Paramount. She's worked on all kinds of projects. She's doing a lot of distribution stuff right now. Uh, definitely a great person to give insight to the industry and uh, to, to help you out. She's got her own radio show that she does every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific called Behind the Scenes with Summer Helene. Uh, my music actually plays on that show as the intro and the outro and the between uh, commercial bits. So uh, check that out. That is on voiceamerica.com and I'll have all those links in the show notes and as well on, uh, on the Facebook group and all that. So so uh, enjoy. Here's Summer Helene. I'd like to welcome to the show Summer Helene. Summer, how are you today? I'm fabulous. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking some time out. I know that you're really busy with uh, lots of projects right now. You've got a pretty full plate, don't you? Uh, yes, I, I always have a pretty full plate, though. It's the unfortunate uh, curse and blessing that goes with my job. Yes. And are you doing mostly distribution right now? I'm doing a lot of distribution right now. I'm also doing um, pre-production on a couple of projects, and I'm in talks to become one of the film reps for Australia. Oh, very nice. Uh, I have to tell you that I had nothing but the most beautiful visions of Australia until I met your mother. And then she showed me a video about how everything in Australia wants to eat you. And that kind of ruined the idea of going there for me. But it still looks beautiful from a distance. Uh, it's, it's very beautiful. The song is um, a, a song by a group called Scared Weird Little Guys. And the song is called Come to Australia. Mm-hmm. You might accidentally get killed. Yes. It's a very, very, it's a very, very good song, actually. I like it very much. I think it was the graphics that got me the most. Yes, that, that will do it. If yes. you've never seen a pissed off in you, you you've never seen fear. <laughs> I, uh, I saw then afterwards, shortly afterwards, a video of uh, somebody trying to box a kangaroo, and the kangaroo just beat the living daylights out of him with no effort whatsoever. And uh, I thought, I'm glad I'm not the person that has to wrangle these for eating at restaurants. You know, I've seen kangaroos rear back and kick at people, and they'll absolutely, that's tough. They'll absolutely disembowel you with their yes. feet. So I would never mess with a kangaroo. But they don't, they're not generally aggressive, only if provoked, right? Or do they just go around just smacking people around? So the males can be aggressive, but for the most part, they're really not aggressive creatures. They're very, very nice animals. And are they delicious? I really don't eat them. I don't eat meat. Um, oh, I occasionally, yeah, I occasionally will. Um, I have had kangaroo. I don't remember it tasting much different than any other meat. Mm-hmm. Well, you did share with me some Vegemite, and I really did like that. 
It was a little bit bitter but, for, for my palate, but I thought it was very good. It was definitely something I would eat again. Uh, you also shared Roscoe's chicken and waffles with me, which um, was my one and only time eating that. <laughs> that and Tommy Burger. I remember your car smelled like Tommy Burger after that red carpet for a month. It was. And, and what was really fun was the, the night that I dropped, we went there and then I dropped you off. And as I was heading back to the car, I saw two skunks walking down the street and they sniffed my car and ran away. <laughs> Tommy Burger will do that. Yes, and if, if you can make a skunk run away from a smell, then you've really created something special, I think. It's true, it's true. So, no, no offense to Tommy Burger. No, no, it was actually delicious. I, I thought it was very tasty, um, but it's just something that will stay with you for a little while. A little while. Yes. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Hollywood, which is sort of your ground. And what is the nickname that you have there? Um, I have a few. They, I get I, the one I like is the Duchess of Hollywood. Yeah, but the Wicked Witch of the West Coast comes up a lot. Yeah, I like Duchess a little better. Uh, <laughs> it's a little bit friendlier. But you, ha- I mean, I'm sure that there's times in business that you have to be very stern and hold your ground. And and I would imagine that that can cause a a fierce reputation, like we all do in any kind of business, really. And my job is to be scary. If I'm showing up on set, it means you're over time, over budget, or something's gone wrong. So if I'm showing up, it's not a good thing. Right. And people have every right to be frightened. So you never just show up to visit a set. You've got too many things to do. Pretty much. Right. What uh, of, of the projects that you've worked on, what would you say you have really just fond memories of when you look back on it? I really don't have very many that I don't have fond memories of. I'm going to have to be really PC here. Because mm-hmm. I, I have to, I have to answer carefully. My end goal is dollars. I'm not looking for Oscars. I'm looking for dollars. Sure. So I'm. Uh, I'd love to say it's for the love of the craft, but my job is the bottom line. So I really, I've never had a flop. Mm-hmm. So as long as it's not a flop, I'm more than happy with it. And I think you're probably one of the only ones in Hollywood that can say that it, that at some point something hasn't gone wrong. But you're incredibly selective about what you work on. Yes, I'm. I'm very, very careful. Um, but like I said, I'm not doing great Oscar pieces. I'm doing money makers. I do sure. a lot of tent poles, um, a lot of horror films because they always make a dime. Oh yeah. So anything that makes money, that's my interest. I do the superhero films. I do the horror films. I do that sort of thing. If you want to find a great Oscar-winning film, don't come to me. But if I want to find something that's kind of off the cuff and entertaining, you might be a better resource. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I would be a very good resource for that. Now, are horror movies something that really only are are beneficial around this time of the year, or is that something that you can really make a a dollar with all year long? It seems like it's any time. You can make money off a horror film all year round. I mean, hell, you can make a Christmas horror film, it'll sell. Give me a killer Easter bunny, I can sell that. You want a killer Thanksgiving turkey, he sells too. There is not one time of year you can't sell a horror film. People will watch it. Yeah, it, it really seems like that's kind of a, a, a much more universal thing than it used to be. It used to be it was really just kind of around this time of year. But it seems like now, uh, even though a lot of the major motion pictures gear to a release around Halloween, like the new Halloween movie we have coming out uh, next month, uh, it, it really seems like you can release a Saw movie or, or something anytime and it's just going to hit. 
It is. And I think what, what's really created that change is the push for horror films. People are looking for more and more terrifying stuff. Mm-hmm. And kids who are the predominant moviegoers, children, particularly females, but female children are the uh, largest demographic for movies, which is, I think, why we got Twilight. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, they do do a lot of horror films. Mm-hmm. Young kids do a lot, a lot, a lot of horror films. Um, I personally hate horror movies, but for people getting into the business, if they want to make a film, it can make money. And the only kind of independent film I've ever seen make money is a really good rom- a really good rom-com and a horror. Mm-hmm. They're the only two that are really going to do well and get you a strong return. If you do a decent horror film, well, actually, you don't even need to do a decent one. I've watched a trauma a lot. And so there's right. campy. Campy as hell. So mm-hmm. horror, good or bad, can make money. You just have to make sure you are comfortable with that. If it's a bad horror, embrace it. Right. It, how much of it do you think is the movie itself versus the marketing to get people to give the movie a chance? It's 100% the marketing. I think that's the big misconception. I think people, and, and I think you should put out, you know, if, if you're, an, especially if you're an independent filmmaker, I think you should do everything that you can to make your film as good as it can be. But I think it's kind of missed that all the budget tends to be blown on the film itself. And then they're like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just do a Facebook campaign or, or we'll do a GoFundMe or, or whatever. And, and they really don't focus as much on the marketing. And I think that's where a lot of people are missing out. A film, John Cut was actually a pretty good film. Mm-hmm. It was a, but it had the worst marketing campaign I've ever seen. It was a sci-fi film about going to Mars. It was exceptionally well acted and it was exceptionally well done. Mm-hmm. But Disney marketed it poorly. And that nearly closed Disney Studios. One film nearly bankrupted the entire studio, $100 million film. Wow. You have no idea how much damage it can do. John Carter was a good film, but it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. They're a terrible film that make a lot of money. Fifty Shades of Grey was god-awful. My assistant is a dominatrix in her off time, and she sat and screamed through the whole movie because they were doing it wrong. <laughs> but um, I can sell a bad film, and I can, get, I, I can make a million dollars, I can make $10 million, I can make $100 million on a bad movie. But with no marketing, it does not matter how good your film is. You can have the greatest film in the entire world. But if nobody's going to see it, it doesn't matter. And a Facebook right. campaign is not going to do squat for you. Exactly. And that's the thing. And we say that in music, too. You can put the greatest piece of music on the Internet, but if no one knows it's there to go listen to it, it doesn't matter how good it is because no one knows. And without marketing, they're not going to find it. Uh, on the flip side of that, I would say a film like The Blair Witch, which had a, a very... A decent budget for an indie film, but that marketing was genius. It was brilliant. And they didn't spend a whole lot of money. They went a really unique way. Mm -hmm. The company Poopery did some of the best ads you've ever seen, and they just played on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So companies, and I know I'm comparing films to companies, but films are essentially business. It's all business. It's all companies. It all works the same way. Sure. And if you have the greatest thing that no one ever sees, it doesn't matter that you have it. You've all been sucked into a bad movie. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of the bad movies you've been sucked into are movies that I'm responsible for. <laughs> and I'm sorry about that. 
I'm really sorry about that. But even with actors, um, any actors I work with, I tell them, that's great that you have an agent. Where's your publicist? Well, I don't have a publicist. Mm -hmm. There is no point in having an agent. If you have to put your money somewhere, don't bother with the manager, get a freaking publicist. Mm -hmm. Because you'll get a better manager, a better agent, a better everything if you've got that publicist. Right. And you work with one of the greatest publicists there is. I do. I work with uh, Cindy Honig off and on, and a whole bunch of different people, but Cindy Honig... Uh, saved Hugh Grant after the Divine Brown incident. Mm-hmm. After he got caught with the um, transvestite prostitute. Yes. While he was dating, while he was dating Elizabeth Hurley, she saved him after that, and she's she's really good. If your world's on fire, call Cindy Honig. Right. I yelled at Jen. I yelled at Jan Brewer's daughter because she wanted me to sign a petition to get the gays out of Arizona. Wow. So I told her what I thought of her, what I thought of her uh, her petition where she could put her petition, um, and where she could go. Well, anyway, she started crying, mm-hmm. and my publicist called and said uh, to just put out a statement, Summer is having an adverse reaction to new medication. We're currently in the process of suing the pharmaceutical company. <laughs> well, first of all, good for you for standing up to that, because that's just a horribly stupid thing to do. Uh, well, Shan Brewer's daughter wouldn't expect Well, yeah. Uh but could could someone like Cindy, who really is at the, the top of the food chain in her industry, could she have helped, say, Roseanne Barr? Yes. Really? Yeah. Roseanne Barr could have been saved. Two things needed to happen. Bill Maher has the best point I ever heard on this. We're attacking celebrities because we can't get into politics. Democrats specifically are going after the people they can reach. Mm-hmm. And we're holding our entertainers to a higher standard than we do our politicians right now. And Roseanne Barr is a schizophrenic woman who has a long history of mental illness and saying ridiculous and outrageous things. Mm-hmm. A decent publicist absolutely could have pulled her out of that before she lost her show. But she would have to shut up. Right. And, and that's the thing, is they would really have to rein her in, I would imagine. And I'm kind of surprised that there weren't more restraints on her going into this new show, considering what she had done in the past, uh, it seems like the, the station would have wanted to protect themselves a little bit more, but uh, that doesn't stop somebody from doing what they want to do. You know, look at it like this. Donald Trump has a whole lot of advisors, and he still has a Twitter account. True. You can control people so much, but in the end, when someone's a loose cannon, Hollywood bails. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter how good you are. We're not looking for the most talented person. That's the reason some of the biggest actors in Hollywood, people sit down and go, how did they make it? Because they're easy to work with. They showed up on time. Right. And they showed a return. We don't care if you are the greatest Shakespearean actor in the world. I care if you show up on time, if you get along with everyone, Mm -hmm. you cause zero problems. Once people get diva on the situation, it's over. I, I never work with them again. But I work with the same people again and again and again because I'm risking you know, a whole lot of other people's money. Right. So I have to make sure that I work with people I know. And you've worked with some great people. You got to work with Christopher Lloyd. I did. I've worked with Chris Lloyd. I've worked with Pam Anderson, um, Dev Dev Ross, who was the first female staff writer at Disney, Mm -hmm. John Reynolds, he's uh, Steven Spielberg's right-hand guy. He worked on 18 Benji, Twilight Zone. I've worked with, my God, um... Owen Land, I've worked with George Landau, I've worked with some of the greatest directors. The only person I haven't worked with that I really want to work with is John Waters. 
Mm. That would be a good experience. I worked mm-hmm. with uh, Paul Greengrass when, when we were shooting Jason Bourne. I just shot with him for one day. And I thought, boy, if I could have found more directors like this, I think I would have liked uh, the business a lot better than I did. Uh, he was just very uh, kind and understanding and thoughtful and considerate in a way that, I mean, he's he's shooting the biggest scene he's ever shot in his life. And, uh, and, and he's just, Hey, I just want to let you know, you know, we're, we're going to just look at this really quick, just really kept us informed, kept us energized. And he even hired a, a comedian to entertain us between takes because he knew that sometimes it would be an hour before we were ready to shoot again. And, uh, they, it was just such a considerate production. I thought this is the kind of guy I would want to work for. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. The mm-hmm. people I work for are coffee cups, coffee cups. Right. <laughs> and staplers. And staplers, it's true. My old boss, when I was working at Paramount, uh, went to show a stapler and a director. It was massively over time and budget. I'm not going to say the director's name because he's actually a pretty well-known director. Mm-hmm. He just wasn't very big at this time. Right. And it hit, it hit me in the back of the head. I got yelled at for not getting out of the way. He had me give him the stapler back so he could re-throw it at the director. I bet you got out of the way that time. Oh, you bet you asked I did. It's it, it's crazy to think that that stuff really goes on without a second thought that that kind of behavior uh, is okay because of someone's status. Do you think that uh, that's changing at all? No, I think Me Too is total horseshit. I think it's a wonderful thing, and I think that if they were really doing something about it, you wouldn't see people getting in trouble that were five minutes from retirement. Mm-hmm. The reality is, until you get an A-lister that's called out. It's bullshit. We're throwing out of, we're throwing under the bus people that are expendable. I personally know quite a few A-listers that have done way worse than you know Louis C.K. got accused of. Mm-hmm. You know, Weinstein was a shock for me because I dealt with him and he was perfectly nice, mm-hmm. but he was also terrified of my boss. Ah, so you were kind of maybe a little protected. I, I was very protected. Anyone touched me, my boss. God rest his soul. I'm sure he's looking up at us right now, uh, enjoying what he's being talked about. <laughs> right. But, but he, he, was, he was very, very good to me. Well, your assistant was terrified of him as well. She was. She would not pick up the phone when he called. She would run. Like, it didn't matter where we were. We could be on set. We could be anywhere. And she wouldn't answer the phone. She'd just run with it towards me because his speaking volume was screamed. Wow. So he could, she could be on the other side of the building, and she could still hear the conversation. At least she's in. So his resting face was Diablo. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> resting bitch face has nothing on him. He, <laughs> he, was, he was terrifying. Um, I, I loved him. I really did. I still do. Sometimes those tough love experiences can be really good for us in the long run, and sometimes it's a shame that we have to go through something a little more extreme to to find a, a, a good lesson in life. And I think that's not just Hollywood. I think that's in general. I think we do that to ourselves a lot as well. I think Hollywood's changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we may not be going after the big guys. We should with Me Too. And I encourage anyone who has a Me Too story with an A-listener, Call me. I'll actually put it out there. Because mm-hmm. I have those stories and I'm not allowed to say anything. Right. Um, my, my assistant was sexually assaulted by another female producer. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of stories you're just not going to hear about. Right. Because the person's too big to throw under the bus. Mm-hmm. And the change can come, but we first have to get past what I'm calling the danger bubble 
which is where we have our YouTube stars mm -hmm. and our Instagram stars and all of these people who are non-famous famous people that are completely unprotected, um, being assaulted, being attacked, being taken. We just had some people from Halloween Resurrection that got kidnapped. Wow. And taken and, and tortured. We have um, the YouTube stars are getting kidnapped. I mm -hmm. mean, sexual assault from fans is on the rise. It's something I've dealt with a lot. And it's getting so much worse. You know, I modeled. Yeah. Yeah. You were a Victoria's Secret model. I was. I modeled. I acted. I did all of that stuff. And I didn't like the attention. Um, and I didn't like people coming over to me and touching me. So I, I was told by uh, Ron Jeremy and Lloyd Kaufman to get behind the camera. No, I wasn't doing porn. I made him on a legitimate film. But hmm. he was a great guy. Uh, but it's caused this, this change. I've gone back to being somebody accessible. And everyone on YouTube is accessible. Every celebrity is accessible. And that's what social media has created. Mm -hmm. So people have these fictitious relationships with people. We had a guy uh, put down on Amy Schumer for not taking a photo with her, and he ended up yelling at her, "We, you know, I'm American, I paid for you. Wow. And she, she wouldn't take a photo with him while she was running. That's a very powerful thing to think, you know, uh, so far from the truth, because I, I think people tend to hold celebrities in some regard as if they they see the A-listers, but they attribute that sort of lifestyle to everyone in the business. If you've been in a movie, you must be rich, you must have a big house, you must know everyone. And that's not the case. Uh, it, it's far from it. And I think that the perception of a person who is in the business is quite different than the reality. I've met a few of them. They're, they're regular people. They're just like anyone else. They just have a really cool job. Yep. And, and that's it. And it's part of what we sell. I mean, you've been there. Mm -hmm. You've been on the carpet. You've been to a lot of different, a lot of different events. And but what, what people perceive and what is are two totally different things. People would kill to get in the VIP room. Mm -hmm. But the VIP room is just a room for everyone to chill out. Yeah. And get away from the press and take off their shoes because they hurt. It was a very interesting experience uh, being in the green room because it was not what you would think at all. It was almost like everybody just kind of walked in and then just sighed and said, I don't have to be me for a few minutes. I can be the real me right now. I don't have to be yeah. poised and, and standing up straight and talking succinctly. I can just relax and be a human being again. And I think it's so sad that someone who gets into this business can't just be that in this business. They have to have a, an image versus just being good at their job and being a team player in the way that you said. They show up on time, they do their job, they, you know, they may interact or have questions, but they don't cause problems. Uh, just like any other job where that wouldn't be accepted, but instead we have to create this image, we have to have this social media thing. We, you know, we have to have all these things that normal people in any other job don't have. But in our job, it's important. Right. And the reason, part of the reason it's important is when you're selling someone a movie or you're selling Hollywood, you're selling a dream. You're not selling something tangible. They want to look at a director and have him look like a director. They want to look at a composer and have him look like a composer. They want to look at a producer and have him or her look like a producer. Mm -hmm. I keep saying him because most of the people are guys. Right. But for people, it's, it's selling part of that image. It's 
it's reaching in to something that has been created for them. We create that world so that people come and watch. We create a world of make-believe. It's like stepping into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. You don't want to know where the Oompa Loompas are getting the chocolate. You just kind of want to taste the boba. <laughs> right. And that's, that's it. And when the Oompa Loompas come out, you don't want to see them smoking a cigar or anything else. You want them singing and happy. Right. And I hate to compare everyone in Hollywood to Oompa Loompas, but we are. No, it's it's a good comparison, though. I mean, because you, you want to... It, it's almost like you could go on YouTube and find out how the magician pulls off the trick, or you could just stay in the illusion that it's magic. And that's exactly it. And you can go behind and learn some of it, but, I mean, even the image is so carefully crafted that mm-hmm. you're not going to find out who that real person is. Right. I know that, you know, I'm, I'm very, very different in my personal relationships than I am at work. You are, very... Yeah, and and everyone is, because it's, there's a certain image. Um, in my personal time, I wear pink sundresses. At work, I look like Cruella DeVille. Uh, essentially, everyone has their, their image, and that image is people's perception. It's one we create perception, the perception... But we also buy into other people's perception. Mm-hmm. It's what people want to see. You don't want to see, you know, a producer that looks like Michael Moore, but you don't want to see a director that looks like a CEO. Mm-hmm. You want to see the producers look like CEOs and the directors look like Michael Moore. Right. And I love Michael Moore, but that's the point. You can expect a director in jeans and a baseball cap, and you're giving leeway to see the director. But to everyone, that's what a director looks like. For the producers, you expect them to look like business people. Mm-hmm. There's a certain image. And by painting yourself with that brush, people put you in that category and they remember you rather than having to place you somewhere else. So it works inside the industry and out. That's very true because going to, to different red carpets and different meetings and things when I lived there, uh, I would get recognized and, and I would be remembered as a composer. And I did have a look that was put together so yeah. that I could be in that that uh, just visual category, I guess it would be. It, it was, yeah. Yeah. And, and I found it fascinating in a way. And, and I find it sad in another that we can't just get to know people and recognize them for who they are. But I also understand you meet how many thousands of people a year? If you can't immediately recognize them as to what to associate them with, you're probably not going to be interested in working with them because you don't know that that's what they do. It's, it's, yes, it's partially that, but it's also when people are scanning through the photos on the red carpet, you have to fit into a category mm-hmm. or you're dismissed right. by the public. And the public, to a degree, is what pays for you even as a composer. Mm-hmm. If they like you... They seek you out. They go to your website. They follow you on online. So you have to be really recognizable and you have to have a look. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did. You had uh, by one of the best image consultants actually in the world mm-hmm. uh, put together your look. And she's, I've dealt with her for years. And she's insulting as hell. She looked at my assistant one day and said, you're a Hispanic girl with long, dark hair. Stay wow. out of the sun, keep your, keep your, what is it, keep, stay out of the sun, keep your skin light, keep your hair dark, cut it short, wear some red lipstick. Mm-hmm. You'll stand out. Because you're in a place with a lot of other Hispanic girls. I'd like to point out the woman that said this is also Hispanic. Mm-hmm. But that was her, that was her comment to my assistant. 
And it wasn't a racial thing at all. It was a matter of she's yeah. just just purely judging on here's where you are, here's where you need to be, and here's what you need to do to get there. Pretty much. She's the one that told uh, Sally Jesse Raphael. And it was one of the best quotes I ever heard. Um, Sally Jesse Raphael was that talk show host with the big red glasses. Mm-hmm. She told her, if you have to wear glasses, wear glasses. Make them a statement piece. If you have to wear them, use them. Own it. Alexis wears glasses and she's got great frames and she's kept the same frames for years. Yeah, very true. Now, do you think that the pressures on, on women are much higher than they are on men in Hollywood to even today? Oh, yeah. I have to do everything a man has to do. I have to do it better. I get paid less mm-hmm. for it and I have to do it in heels. You know, I heard uh, a very interesting uh, series of interviews with Scarlett Johansson, and it was a co- sort of a compilation that had been put together where people were just constantly asking her about, uh, it, it, different interviewers were asking her about what she was wearing underneath her suit in, in whatever movie that she was a superhero. Avengers. Avengers, yeah. And it was, you could tell that she was visually just disturbed by the continual questions because men would never get asked that. You know, whoever's playing Batman is not getting asked whether he's wearing underwear or not. And yet women, that's especially only if it's a male interviewer, seems to be uh, a question that they continually ask. Do you see that ever really changing? It's not. No. It's, and it's not just mm-hmm. there. It's on the right carpet. They asked um, uh, Tara Knightley at the Oscars if she was wearing underwear, if she was wearing mm-hmm. a skin-tight fitted dress. She was absolutely shocked, and she looked at him and said, of course mm-hmm. I am, I'm a lady. And so it's not an uncommon question. I get asked that question. If I'm wearing a suit of dress or if I'm at an event, what are you wearing underneath? Will you go for Victoria's Secret? Do you wear Victoria's Secret under there? Right. You know, and, some, and I answer, I love Victoria's Secret, but what I'm wearing is none of my business. Why do you think that that's such an important thing to interviewers or, or that they think that, that's, that fans want to know that? Because you sexualize and admire the people that you want to be like and the people that you watch. And I think it has a lot to do with the Kardashians these days. The Kardashians are the worst thing that has happened to people. It has taken the nouveau riche, tacky lifestyle and made it a, an aspiration. If people are going to do that, for God's sake, go admire Kate Middleton. She's a lady. Yeah, I don't, I've never understood the fascination with with reality stars because it, it, anyone who thinks that that's reality is so far off the mark, it's not even funny. But they they don't offer anything. Like, there's nothing inspiring. There's nothing amazing. It's it's just there. It's escapism. It is. But, but do people really, is it that they want to feel better about their lives so they watch these people fight and be jerks and, and things all the time? Does that make them feel better in their own life? Is that the draw? No. It's, okay, that's the draw to things like Honey Boo Boo. But the draw to the Kardashians, it's, it's the nouveau riche. It's the look at all that these people have, look at all of this, look at all of that, live vicariously. They don't realize everything they're seeing, they're being sold. Everything mm. is branded. Yo, yeah. Yeah, very much so. I, I think the greatest line is in, in the song Soak Up the Sun. It's, it's not having what you want. It's wanting what you have. And I think we're, we're always so concerned about what, where we're not that we don't take the time to enjoy where we are. And I think a popularity of a show like that really just kind of expands on that concept. I think we're trying to live in a world that, that we're not in instead of creating a world we want to live in. But that's part of it. It takes too much effort. 
Yeah, that's true. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask you, uh, so obviously, you know, you've been on, I I can't even imagine how many red carpets. I I know just in the short time I lived there, I went to a bunch with you. Uh, For for the people that watch them on TV, um, what, what, how would you describe the experience versus the perception of it? The perception is that it's glamorous and it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And they don't realize that you've got an assistant to the left trying to pull your clothes in place. You've got someone in front of you trying to make sure your dress doesn't go up. You've got a bunch of cameras. You've got people calling to you. You hear on the red carpet these people's names being called because they're trying to get them to turn towards the photographers. And you always have to go right, middle, left. And that's the series in, in the positions you take the photo. Then you step down three paces and it's right, middle, left. Then you get a microphone, put in your hand, and you do an interview. And this goes on, depending on how far and how long the carpet is, for quite a while. And there are a lot of risks. You know, you have to be careful. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's nothing like I would expect. Yeah. It, 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 the first couple that I did were a really interesting experience because it's not at all uh, what I thought it was. You know, um, it's it's a long time of standing there and waiting for, for you to be next. And then it just, they, it, it just feels like you're being rushed through and there's these flashes all over the place. And there's so much noise that you really can't hear who's directing you when it's time to turn, yes. you know, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's pandemonium. It is. And it's, it's like hurting kittens and you've got to push the actors through. You've got to push the people through and you get organized. You go through the carpet and you get pulled to the side and they put you there, and they go through this long list of all the stuff you're supposed to do. By the time you get to the carpet, you've completely forgotten it. Right. And then, then it is. It's just pandemonium. And you get through it, and it looks glamorous, and it looks fun. But by the time you get through the carpet, I've done the carpet, and then when I got to the other end, uh, Alexis has been, had another pair of heels for me, or one of my other assistants has mm. had another pair of shoes for me. Because whatever I'm walking right. in, and you wore that just for the pictures. Yep. Yeah. And then you have to remember who you're wearing from your makeup to your hair to your jewelry to your clothes. You know, I've forgotten more than once who am I wearing. I'm like, ah, uh, shit. Right. And maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe that's part of it too is that uh, men don't tend to look at men and go, I really like his style. I want to be like that. Who's he wearing? You know, we don't really tend to do that. I mean, there are people that do, but the, they're, I would say, in the minority, whereas women uh, would be constantly, oh, who are they wearing? Oh, that's that. I've got to get a dress like that, or I want to check out their other stuff. Or if they're wearing that line, I want to wear something for that line because I really like this celebrity. And maybe that's part of why women are asked that more than men as well. Um, they are, but men are being asked that more and more. They'll now say he's wearing his tuxedo by whoever. Men, men are dressing up more for the Vanity Fair events wow. than they used to. It's really become a different thing. They've finally figured out. The issue wasn't that men weren't interested. It's that they hadn't figured out how to uh, sell it right yet. Well, that would make sense. Well, you have a wonderful radio show that comes on at 4 p.m. Pacific time every week called Behind the Scenes. Thank you. And uh, you have a co-host, Paul Michael Bolin. And 
uh, I love the show. I, I think that it's it just goes too fast. It's That hour seems to be gone in no time, and there's always a bunch more questions that need to be asked, and you're out of time. But it's nice to be able to interview you for a change instead of as when I've been on the show as the interviewee. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. Where can people find out more about you and the things that you have going on besides listening to the show? And that is on the uh, – what's the name of the station? Uh, it's on Voice America. It's the easiest place to listen to it, but it also plays on Sirius XM, uh, it's 40. I, I don't remember all the stations. Alexis knows. So if you go to my Facebook and Twitter, uh, no, if you go to my Twitter, I actually respond from my Twitter. Not everyone does. Um, some of my other accounts are handled by other people, but my Twitter I actually spend some time on. Is, is that the one you get yelled at the most? Yes, I get yelled at the most <laughs> on Twitter. Which you know has to be the one that I'm there. But you can find me. Um, my name's Summer Helene. You can find me anywhere. If you're interested in getting in the business or you have anything you think is making any money, I'm a great person to look up for that. And check out the show. It's behind the scenes. It's on Voice America. We put up links each week. We just had the uh, kid from Copa Kai. He was awesome. And then we have um, my co-host Paul Michael Bolin. He's, he's, it's, it's interesting. He's a conservative, politically sort of. He's more libertarian, but, you know, he voted for Trump, and I'm about left of Lenin. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, I'm, a, I'm pretty liberal. So sometimes you'll jump into a little bit of bickering now, but other than that, it goes pretty well. But you know what I really like about the way that you two interact is that you can have that conversation and, and, and not turn into blocking each other on Facebook because that's what we do now when we can't get along. You know, Paul had a lot of people when he voted for Trump. He was actually a Bernie or buff. Um, so he wanted Bernie Sanders. When Bernie didn't get the nomination, he went to Trump. And this is a guy that voted twice for Obama. So he had, he lost friends over it, people in the industry especially, um, I'm not very forgiving about it. I don't understand. I, I think that the, one of the biggest problems we have in the world is that we can't have an honest dialogue anymore. We don't have, you know, if if you're having a conversation with somebody, people tend to stop listening as soon as they hear something they don't like, and they create the rebuttal. And then the person that's speaking doesn't know that they've stopped listening, so they don't know that their points aren't being heard. It's not, you tell me what you feel and why you feel the way you do, and I'll tell you how I feel and why. And let's see if there's maybe something we can learn from each other, and maybe there's some middle ground we can agree on. It just has to be either you think the way I do or you're an idiot. Oh, yes, but that's because people are pig-headed. I know, I'm one of them. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm terrible. There are times that your opinion is right, and there are times that you need to learn to shut up. If it comes to a film, I know that I'm right. When it comes to the film industry, I bet on myself 100% of the time. Now, if you want to know you know, anything else, I think my brother put it best. Deep pools of knowledge, vast fields of nothingness. I like that. I know very little outside my own industry. And a lot of people don't. A lot of people only know what they know. The difference is you're, you're wise enough not to speak about things that you're not familiar with, where it seems that everybody thinks that they're just an expert on anything if they get heated enough. Gotcha. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. As always, it's just awesome to talk to you, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Summer. 
always a great time to talk to Summer. She's amazingly brutally honest, which I think is something that that we need. Uh, I think a lot of people tend to sugarcoat everything that they hear, or they you know kind of don't want to convey the reality of things. So we try to do that as a society these days. I really don't get it. Uh, to me, knowing the truth is the best thing at all times because then you really know what decisions you can make and how to proceed with things. Uh, thank you guys once again for enjoying the show and I hope that you will leave your star rating or review on iTunes or wherever you happen to be listening. Uh, if you have any questions, again, you can reach me at scott at scotthaskin.com. Look forward to seeing you guys on the next episode. 